0: And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. The last podcast I recorded was entitled, The Ultimate Buy and Hold Strategy 2020 Update. And uh, as I mentioned there, by the way, if you have not listened to that, I think it would be helpful to do that before you listen to this particular uh, podcast that is devoted to fine-tuning your asset allocation. This will be update 2020 as well. The purpose of the Ultimate Buy and Hold podcast is to discuss 10 different equity asset classes, all of which could be part of your portfolio. And the amount you might have of each of those may be very different from what I advocate, but they're all equity asset classes that have a long history of providing a premium for the risk of investing in equities. So that was the purpose of that particular podcast, all about equities, all about big and small and value and growth and U.S. and international and REITs and emerging markets. And to show, by the way, how each one of those, as you add them to your portfolio, to the extent of the amount that you do add them, what it does to the return and what it does to the risk. So that's a big deal. Because you're theoretically, particularly if you're a very young investor, you're hopefully learning about this in the early years rather than waiting until you're in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s before you learn about these important equity asset classes. But then the next decision we make is how much we put into fixed income to go along with whatever equity that we choose and to understand what the implications are in terms of risk and the implications in terms of return. And and what I am so focused on is, is doing all that I can in the little time I have with you to help create reasonable expectations. I'm going to share a couple of numbers that I believe might knock your socks off. They're not what you expect, and yet they are the normal thing to expect. I'll get to that in just a few minutes. So as I go through this process, I'm thinking in terms of not just what the risk and return is, combining the S&P 500 and fixed income bonds. But what about a worldwide diversified strategy? What about an all-value strategy? What about a strategy that's half in U.S. and half in international versus a strategy that is 70% in U.S. and 30% in international? I will I will spend a few minutes, at least a few minutes, on each one of those combinations. But I want to spend most of my time focusing on the S&P 500. Uh, The other ones, in many ways, are more important in that I think they will have some impact on how you might change your asset allocation, Um, Maybe you change your asset allocation in terms of how much in stocks and bonds or how much in U.S. and international, et cetera, how much in a blend of growth and value, or how much should you have in an all-value equity portfolio. But the reason the S&P 500 table is so important, and this is table number one, is is because it is the asset class, uh, the fund, uh, the 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 type of investment that represents what the majority uh, of investors have their money in, whether it's it's money for retirement uh, or money that uh, they're accumulating for some other purpose, but are taking an equity position because. The S&P 500 represents uh, somewhere 80, 85% of the value of corporate America. So when you get the total market index, you're going to, in essence, have most of the return driven by the same companies that are in the S&P 500. And and I think it's also fair to say this is what uh, the 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 security or the group of securities the index that is most considered to be the market in the united states so if you'll hopefully have printed out or you've got it on your computer table 1 uh, of the fine tuning tables this one the equity position is all s&p 500 And then the decision is, okay, if you're going to have all of your money in the S&P 500, and remember, total market index looks almost the same. Literally tenths of of a percent difference when there is a difference, and often there is no difference. So the S&P 500, if you look at the far right column, is the index return no expenses taken out of that index. Uh, And, uh, of course, that's that's not what happens in real life. In real life, you've got to pay somebody an expense ratio to manage that for you. And we have reflected in the column right next to the S&P 500 index, we have shown the return less Four one-hundredths of one percent expense ratio, and that is new. We have adjusted the expense ratios uh, in our uh, in these these tables that we're building to reflect the, the the expenses you could pay today. Now let's be realistic. In 1970, there was no such thing as the S and P 500. That didn't happen. Uh, until 1976 when John Bogle brought out uh, his Vanguard S&P 500 fund. And so that was the first time retail investors could actually invest in that index. So this is part hypothetical and part real. And as I've said many times, all returns in the past are hypothetical, only to the extent that you, you, you could, uh, whether they're real or, or just recreated, you're still never going to have the same thing again. Now, as I look at this table, I see column after column of numbers. I want you to know right now that with a little work, little thought, One of these columns represents who you are in terms of your need for return and your willingness to take risk. And that's what this table is built to try to help you determine. Now, if we look at the first line in this table, it says the year 1970. And if you follow to the right, you'll see a column headed by 100% bonds. And this is a combination of, as you go down the bond column, short-term and intermediate-term and TIPS, all government uh, paper. And and, and to the extent there were not TIPS in 1970, you get a combination of the intermediate and short-term. Eventually, when the TIPS are available, it's 50% intermediate, 30% 30% short-term, and 20% tips. Uh, those, those are recommended if you look at our Vanguard or you look at our Fidelity or uh, Schwab and the other portfolios we recommend. Those are the three kinds of bonds that we use. Then as you keep moving across, the next column says 10 90. That's 10% equity. bonds. Notice the return is down to 13.8. So you made 14.8 in that particular year if you had all your money in bonds. You made less if you added some stocks because for that year, if you go all the way over to the right, you'll notice that the S&P 500 only made 4% in 1970. But every time we add more stocks to the portfolio, because bonds did better than stocks that year, you're going to reduce the return of the portfolio. And I'm going to stop for a second at 50 50. And the 50 50 column is, well, first of all, it's halfway in between stocks and bonds, you got half in each. It's also the portfolio that my wife and I have. We're in our 70s. We don't have the appetite for a lot of risk, but we want to have some reasonable growth. So we are 50-50, and most retirees are in between 40% in equity and 60% in equity. And that's true of target date funds, if you look how they are constructed. But we keep going until we get all the way to 100% in the S&P 500. So what you have on this table, they represent, each column does, the ride you would have taken had you put your money in 100% bonds or 50% bonds, 50% equities, or 100% equities. You're going to have some huge returns in the all equities, and while you'll never have some huge returns in the bonds, you'll have minuscule losses when you suffer them, as opposed to the all equity portfolio, which is going to have some uh, some really difficult, uh, challenging years or periods for people when losses were as much as 50% or more. And the question is kind of where you fit in this, in these combinations. Now, I want you to, 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 to think about how much the future might look like the past. We'll never have Nixon as a president. We'll never have, uh, we'll never have uh, Clinton or Obama or Trump or Jimmy Carter. We'll, we'll never have the same series of events we'll always have problems, and hopefully they'll always been solved. We'll always have political struggles and have periods when we feel at high risk and periods that we'll feel some sense of comfort. But the market does wild and crazy things because of forces that we don't necessarily anticipate before they happen. For example, if I just look at one area all bonds, look at all bonds from 70 through 79. I like to look at these decade periods here. You'll notice there were a couple of years you made 10% or more. You only had one year that, or two years that were particularly low. One year you made 2.3%, another year you made three. But look at the next decade Would you have expected from what you experienced in the 70s that during the 80 through 89 uh, period that you'd have a 25% return in one year, a 14, an 18, a 13, another 13? In fact, the worst return was a return of 3%. Those were amazing years in the bond market, but it was also a period of very high inflation. And then we go all the way down to the bottom of that column and we look from 2010 to 2019. Do you think in that period from 1980 to 1989, people would see, a, a, let's just look at from 2012 to 2019, up 3.4, down 3.6, up 3.4, up 0.9, up 1.8, up 1.9, up 0.6. Up six point three. I mean, those that decade was 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 not a great decade for fixed income investors. Now, if we go to the far right, we see some of the same wildness, except now we're talking real volatility. Because we can see uh, that in the. Ten-year periods for the S&P 500, there were some periods that were just terrible or relatively terrible, and there's some periods that were really very good. Like The period 1970 through 79 had the 14.7% loss in 73 and a 26.5% loss in 74 and then a a 7.2% loss in 77. And then, after struggling, and many people literally gave up and got out of stocks totally, there was a, a big headline, a front page cover on think U.S. News and World Report, and the big, big letters, the end of equities, or maybe it was the death of equities. Anyhow, it was that people had simply given up on having money in the equities market. The tech stocks had been hit badly, and even the S&P 500 at one point was down over 50%. But then when you look not only at the 80s but at the 90s, with the exception in 1981 uh, with a loss of 4.9% meaningless, small loss, and a loss in 1990 of 3.1. Everything else was profitable. Up 32, 21, 22, 32, 18, 31, 30, 23, 37, 33, 28, 21. I mean, it was truly a, the golden age Of investing. In fact, if you went back to 1975 and you include that one loss of 7.2%, you had gains of 37, 23, 18, and 6. And so people who had the good fortune, good luck of investing during that 20 or 25 year period. These were people who had a a legitimate shot at a early retirement. Of course, everybody was scared to death about what inflation might do to you. So what we don't know is how this market is going to move up, move down for long periods, for short periods. It's a mystery. And it's the risk that we take when we put our money in equities. But what we then conclude to make life easy when we think about our investments, and this is true not only for the individual but also for professionals, that we'd like to believe that there's kind of something we can count on. And the something that we think we can count on is what professionals almost every year predict about the next year, and that is the market will probably make around 10%. Why? Because the compound rate of return has been about 10% for the last 90 years. Now, the fact is that for the last 50 years, the compound rate of return, including uh, the reinvestment of dividends, has been 10.6%. Now, uh, this is over a 50-year period that includes many serious declines. Uh, of over of over fifty percent. In fact, uh, uh, three of them, as well as in a period that it didn't go down fifty percent. But what did happen was, in one day, it lost over twenty-two percent in 1987, October 19th. But that ten percent is kind of a magic number, and we don't really know if we're going to get a ten percent compound rate of return in the future, but I think that most people kind of assume that because that's what they've gotten for the last 90 years. But here's something I find fascinating, is that over the last 50 years, if we look at how often the market actually makes 10% for a year, in fact, let's forget about 10%. Let's just say how often does the market end up making 8 to 12% a year? That's a very wide difference from 8 to 12. Surely there must have been lots of years that it ended up making somewhere in between 8 and 12, but no. There were only 3 times that the stock market, the S&P 500 Calm made for a year eight to twelve percent. The rest of the time it was below it or it was above it. But what was more common than eight to twelve was over thirty. There were nine years that the market was over thirty percent. And there were also, by the way, ten losing years, and the average loss was So that gives you some idea that uh, there is an expectation that you're going to have some pretty doggone big up moves and big down moves. But this 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12% return, that really isn't all that common. It just turns out to be the compound rate of return. And I think it's also important to understand that interest rates can be very, very high in your life. In in fact, uh, there are lots of people who listen to our podcast who are in their 20s and their 30s, which means they're likely to live for a 50-year period and they're also likely to be through a period of very high inflation as well as they've already lived through a period of very low inflation. It it, it it always boils down to the reality that there is always list A, the good news, reason the market shall go up. There's always list B, the bad news, the reasons that the market should go down. But what happens to the market... It's not that it's magic. It's not that we can't explain it afterwards. But being able to predict is very, very difficult. And it's one of the reasons that I think if young people can just hold their nose and invest, they are likely over the long term to do much better in stocks than they are in bonds by by a lot and we'll see that when we start looking at the at the distribution tables and the accumulation tables that we'll cover in the uh, in the coming weeks but it isn't all just about making money because you can see as you look down at the bottom of the columns where you have the annualized return that as you add 10% more in equities. For example, look at the return. The annualized return right below the year 2019 for an all bond portfolio was 6.9. All you needed to do to add 5 tenths of 1% to the return, and we've talked so much about how impactful over a lifetime a half a percent is. Well, from six point nine to seven point four, that is because you added ten percent equities, and the and the risk of ten percent in equities is very low. And then, as you add another ten percent, it's four tenths of one percent. And then another ten percent, it's a half of one percent. And by the time you're up to thirty percent in equities, you've got an eight point three percent compound rate of return, rather than the 6.9 with 100% in bonds. And you keep do if you keep adding and adding and adding and getting rid of bonds, you go to the right side of the page and you're up to 10.6%. And that is over a lifetime, a huge return certainly compared to the 6.9. Now I can tell you that that 6.9 is a high return historically. Returns of about five and a half is more normal, at least looking at the period of the last 90 years. So, great lesson there. Add some more equities, even if it's only a little. It can change your financial future. And if you're really afraid of the stock market, I want you to see the implications of adding maybe 20% to stocks. Remember, if you look down at the annualized return, 6.9, if you took almost no risk, even bonds have some volatility, but it's very, very low. But if we added 20%, we would take our return up to 7.8%. And the question is, how much risk did you have to take? in order to get that extra return. Well, over this 50-year period, there was a 12-month period, not a calendar year, but 12 consecutive months that that combination lost 8.6%. You see the 12 months, worst 12 months, if, if, if you didn't have any stocks in your portfolio, you had to put up with a period of a loss of 3.6. How could you lose money on bonds? Because when interest rates go up, bonds go down. So there were some periods when this portfolio did suffer some losses. If you added 10% in equities you actually had a worst 12 months that was only 3.3. But when you get out to 20% in equities, now you're exposing yourself to a one-year loss of about 8.6%. And if you look down at the worst 60 months in a row, let's call that five years, the worst thing that happened was you made 2.3% a year. So if you were able to hold on for five years, you were able to get a return, worst case, of 2.3% a year. With bonds on their own, the worst case was a gain of 0.4% a year. There was a period when bonds made very, very little money over a period of five years. So, how far to the right can you go? My wife and I have decided, with our 50-50 buy-hold stock bond portfolio, that we are willing to lose 23.2% that's the amount that a 50-50 strategy with the S&P 500 and treasury securities, some very short term, some intermediate term, none long term. So, we are willing to lose a significant amount of our life savings because one we can we've oversaved, so we're built to lose more. But because Historically, the market has always come back. doesn't mean it has to. There's no guarantee. I always found this table extremely helpful when working with uh, prospects and and with clients. In fact, sometimes you have to bring this table out once a year to go back over the basics. By the way, the time you most likely have to take it out is when you've been through a tough year and they need to be reminded that, that that loss that you sustain in a year from time to time is uh, always makes people question what uh, how this all works. And so you have to go back to the basics. The challenge for you do-it-yourself investors is that's a conversation you have to have with yourself or with your spouse, and hopefully this table will help you. But there's more. I would like you to take a look now at Table 2. Keep Table 1 nearby because I want to show you how when you change the asset allocation in a portfolio, it can change the returns that you you get significantly even though the risk can be almost exactly the same. In Table 2, we take the returns... Uh, from the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy. Remember, this, again, is the 10-asset class strategy uh, that's going to give you small pieces, 10% pieces of U.S. large-cap blend and value, U.S. small-cap blend and value, blend being a combination of growth and value, and then REITs, U.S. REITs, and then 10% in international large-cap blend and value, and international small-cap blend and uh, value, and finally, emerging markets. So in the ultimate buy-and-hold worldwide equity strategy, uh, we have it with 50-50 stocks and bonds, and in a few minutes, we'll look at 70-30 stocks and bonds, but um, our My wife and I, our actual portfolio is the worldwide equity portfolio, 50-50. Now, why would a lot of people be comfortable with 70-30, 70% U.S., 30% international? Because they like having more international stocks. We all have a, a, a home bias. That seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. But what I, want to, what I want to do is to have you look at some of those very same columns that we looked at uh, before. Uh, but this time, the 100% stock portion is going to be the worldwide equity portfolio. And these returns uh, in, in that worldwide portfolio they reflect uh, expenses taken out of these uh, uh, funds uh, over this 50-year period. Now, in the case where there was only an index and no actual mutual fund, uh, we applied the fees that those funds have today because not all these funds were around in 1970 or these asset classes. This was uh, These asset classes were, in essence, discovered by academics uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s. So, uh, looking at this table, what we have to learn? Well, the first thing I would like you to look at is I would like you to look at the S&P 500 far right-hand column and look at the column next to it, the 100% stock. That means in this particular case, 100% in the worldwide equity portfolio. And you will see there is quite a difference. In in fact, in the first year, 1970, you will notice that the S&P 500 was up 4%, but the worldwide strategy was down 2.6. But the next year, the S&P was up 14.3, and the worldwide was up 30.5%. Then the next year, the S&P was up 19, worldwide up 29.4. Then we ran into a buzzsaw, a, a two-year bear market. And in 74, the market, the S&P was down 14.7, and the worldwide equity down 19. And then in 1974, the S&P was down 20. and the worldwide down 25.9, and you could just go down one after another. In fact, 1977 is an interesting one. The S&P 500 is down 7.2, the worldwide equity up 26.9. In fact, the next year, 1978, the S&P was up 6.8, the worldwide equity up thirty-one point four. Now at that point you might be thinking, Wow, you know <laughs> that is a great place to put my money from from now on. Well, let's just look at the years nineteen ninety-five through nineteen ninety-eight. In nineteen ninety-five, S P five hundred up thirty-seven point eight, worldwide equity up sixteen point three. The next year, S&P up 23, and the worldwide up 14.6. The next year, while the worldwide is only up 6.1, the the, the, the S&P is up 33.4, and that's followed by a year the worldwide was up 5.3, while the S&P was up 28.6. I don't care where you put your money, Every strategy is going to have periods of great success and periods of poor performance. So certainly the performance of the worldwide equity relative to the S&P 500 from 1995 to 98 was, was, it was huge. And I was in the business then. I had clients who I had convinced that this was a good way to invest to have their money more diversified and then to have this happen you know they're they're probably looking for another advisor who has better insight but then for the next 3 years while the S&P 500 is down 9 and then 12 and then 22 our strategy was down under two, under two, and about eight. So we looked amazing in the worst of times. And then that was followed by four more years that, that the S&P underperformed by anywhere from 10 to, to 20%. So the bottom line is what we're concerned about or what we're curious about. Even though we know that it does not guarantee the future, we still want to know, with all those years of ups and downs at different times, what was the compound rate of return of the S&P? 10.6. What was the compound rate of return of the worldwide equity? 12.4. What was the standard deviation? Virtually the same. What was the worst 12 months of the S&P? Down 43.3. The worst 12 months of the worldwide was down 50.6. But over the worst five years, the worldwide equity made uh, almost 2% more a year for five years. So the differences are significant when you're living through it at the end of the time it's significant too because that's almost a 2% difference in return but i want you to notice something interesting here that that difference comes from being willing to be to add equities to the fixed income and it, yeah, when i say it's interesting it's interesting to me to note that as you add 10% fixed income, you get a nice increase. From zero equity to 10% equity, you go from 6.9 to 7.6. Instead of five hundredths, it's seven one-hundreds. And then instead of most of the differences as you go across the page being 0.5 uh, percent or 0.4, it's 0.6. In fact, if you look at the return at the uh, 60/40, you'll notice the compound rate of return was 10.5 percent, almost the same as the 10.6 with an all-equity S&P 500 strategy. In fact, the, one of the important points to re, to to realize here is this isn't just about being able to do better than the S&P 500. It may for you be to try to to emulate the return of the S&P 500, but do it with less equity in your portfolio, much less risk. For example, I said a minute ago that the The uh, S&P 500 had a 43% loss in order to get 10.6, whereas the worldwide equity as the equity portion of your portfolio with 60% equity had a 28% loss, 27.8 actually. So you took much less risk, in fact, pretty close to 50% less risk and achieve the same rate of return by diversifying beyond the S&P 500. And and I might note, for those of you who are not great risk takers, that if you look at the period uh, from 1975 through even 2007, the, the rates of return in fact, look under 50-50, starting in 1975. I'll just round the numbers. Up 26, up 17, up 14, 16, 11, 17, 7, 18, 19, 11, 30, 25, 20, 16, 18, and finally in 1990, a loss of 4%. Then a gain of 20 and 5 and 19 and one tenth of one percent, sixteen, almost nine, six, seven, ten, five, three, two, twenty-four, fourteen, eight, fourteen, and six before you have to suffer a nineteen percent loss. And that nineteen percent loss came in two thousand eight. So th- these numbers, I think, might give folks who are not willing to take a lot of risk a sense that there actually is a potential a better rate of return and that of course is because the equity portion is making an extra almost an extra 2% a year now i might mention and i, I didn't mention this when i addressed the s&p 500 only If you're sitting around doing your planning here and you don't know what kind of a compound rate of return you can count on, nobody knows what it will be. But I do think for a whole bunch of reasons that I would take whatever combination of equity, fixed income you're going to accept, I would think if you took 2% off of the compound rate of return, For example, in this 50-50 strategy, over the 50-year period, the worldwide equity and the government bonds compounded at 10%. So I would say uh, that for the next 50 years, it wouldn't shock me if that number uh, might be 8% instead of 10%. Now, obviously, for a short period of time, it could be that you're going to have a loss. In fact you're going to have days you lose money you'll have years you lose money it's unlikely very unlikely because you're half in, in in fixed income it's very unlikely that you would suffer a loss at the end of uh of of 10 years and i guess it's also worth noting on that table too that uh there is Uh, The five-year, the worst 60 months for the 50-50 strategy was a gain of a half a percent uh, a year. So that's pretty disappointing, but it's certainly not as bad as the 4 to 6.6% you would lose in the worldwide equity and the S&P 500. And just out of curiosity, I I took a look to see how many years... Ah the worldwide equity strategy made that uh, between that 8 to 12% return for a single year, well, there were actually uh, only two years that they got that that return. Uh, And you're going to notice, if you look at the returns, that they are more volatile. But the standard deviation uh, is the same for the S&P 500 uh, and the... uh, Uh, And the worldwide equity. Now, uh, as far as uh, uh, other lessons that could be learned here, you know, I think what you need to do is, if you like the worldwide equity strategy in the 50-50, and you think you've got an idea of where you fit on this table in terms of risk and return, just run your finger down those series of events and Try as best you can to imagine, particularly in the worst of times, how you would feel. And, and, and would you be able to stay the course waiting for the opportunity for the market to rebound? And you'll notice it always has, whether it's after the huge losses of 73 and 74. Look what happened for the, for the next five to eight, nine years after 2000, 2002, 2002. Look how it bounced back, or after certainly 2007, 2008, and early part of 2009, a huge run in the market. The more comfortable you come to be with the the reality of that process, the more likely you are to stay the course and reap the rewards the market offers. Now, let's look at uh, table number three. I'm not going to spend much time here. I only want to note that here is a portfolio that is 70% U.S., 30% international. And in making that change, yes, because U.S. and international stocks don't go up and down together, large and small don't go up and down together. And at the end of the 50-year period, the volatility and the return is almost the same. You made one-tenth of 1% less. Maybe you would have had greater peace of mind uh, having that uh, larger hunk of the portfolio uh, being in the land you love and not over in some foreign market. Uh, and, And I should mention that um, you would still be, by the way, investing in U.S. mutual funds, but they'd be U.S. mutual funds owning international securities. So that, I hope, will give you some sense of, uh, I guess my conclusion was it do- would be it doesn't matter. Uh, but there will be some years that will be different. For example, as I look at uh, table number two, for most of the years... In the last decade, the 70-30 did better than the 50-50 because the U.S. equities were more profitable than the international. And now let's look at table number four. Uh, This table represents the equity portion being all in the all-value asset class, Now, in reality, it's not a pure all-value because when you buy a series of big and small and U.S. and international and emerging market value funds, you're going to get some growth. As a matter of fact, sometimes when you buy a small-cap value fund, you'll get some mid-cap. And sometimes when you buy a large-cap value fund, you'll get some mid-cap. So they're not perfect. But looking back over the last 50 years, it turned out, and there are a couple reasons for this compared to earlier tables that we have produced. One is the last few years have certainly not been productive for value. And also, when we went through a complete audit over the last year of, uh, of the data that was used to build the portfolios, uh, we noted that back in the 70s, uh, that when DFA themselves reevaluated all of the, uh, the, the funds or the stocks that they picked to uh, replicate these particular asset classes, that there were some value funds that had, or indexes, by the way, that had lower returns than previously previously reported. But at the end of the period of time, uh, it turns out that the compound rate of return of the all-value portfolio is virtually uh, the same as the... 50 50 worldwide uh, strategy that was both a combination of value and growth again i have to highlight uh that uh, over the last decade not just the last couple of years but really over the last decade uh, value has un- underachieved uh the expected premium over growth that has happened before uh and uh there are some who say the value premium is, uh, is, is being reduced. Yes, in fact, Fama and French have a recent study uh, about that, and uh, they admit that since 1991 when they came out with their uh, studies on small and value uh, that the premiums have shrunk, but they're still substantial. And, uh, and certainly over the last 20 years, uh, value has produced a uh, premium, but the last 10 have been difficult for value. So the end result is that whether you have value or, or the combination of growth and value, over the 50-year period, the return uh, was uh, virtually the same. But when we look at Table 5, we'll notice that the seventy thirty 30 strategy uh, produces a slightly better return. You pick up an extra uh, one-tenth of 1%. It's a 126 instead of a 12.5% return, and uh, that is because uh, over the last uh, period of the, the 50 years, Uh, that the U.S. value produced a better premium uh, than the uh, international. My expectation would be that uh, investors will probably have a slightly higher return with the all-value portfolio, Uh, but the reality is, is that for people who want to try to modify the volatility as much as possible, uh, that by having the growth and the value, the big and the small, the U.S. and the international, and uh, all of those what have historically been really very fine returning asset classes uh, would, would be a, a, a very, you can't say safe, you can't say secure, you can't say guaranteed. certainly have an opportunity for a very fine long-term return. So what's the bottom line from all of these tables? One is that you have a phenomenal amount of control over the risk that you take uh, based on the amount of fixed income you put in your portfolio. That uh, every 10 percent It's truly of additional equity. It's truly a life changer that you could use these tables as a way of helping you with building your glide path. We should all have a glide path. My, I should say our glide path is that we're going to be 50-50 with our buy and hold. So as long as I stay 50-50... I don't have to reevaluate how much risk I should take, but let's say somebody is building their own glide path and uh, they're going to be all equity until they're 40 years of age. And so they would not have to worry about fixed income, but let's say they start at age 40 adding fixed income to the portfolio. And they want to try to figure that out. How much would I want to be adding? And it may be that you want to try to start reducing your risk by a certain amount each year. And you can see that, that what happens is, let's just for the sake of discussion, look at the worst 12 months for the 100% equity portfolio And and just for the sake of discussion, let's look at the 50-50 worldwide equity to do that. So here's what we know about the worldwide, that you would expect along the way that you're going to have a loss of about 50% in a terrible year for the worldwide equity strategy. Now, with that in mind, as you decide to start reducing the amount of risk, If you reduced it by 10% every five years, let's just assume that was your strategy. That would mean that as you, let's say at at age 40, you went to 90% equity, and that would mean you would have reduced that worst year to 46.5% according to the table. Then let's say the end of that five years, when you're 45, you reduce it by adding another 10%. Now you're taking your worst-case year down to 42%. Then you do it again at 50, and you're taking your worst-case year down to 38%. And then at 55, you take another 10%. Now you're down to 60% equity, 40% fixed income. And now your worst-case year is 33%. And then maybe you, at age 60, take it on down another 10%, and that you're 50-50, and that's what you are for the rest of your life. Or uh, some sort of a formula like that. And you can use this table to then consider what you've changed your worst-case scenario to. Now, the worst-case scenario doesn't happen very often, if you look at, at drawdowns from peak to a valley before it recovers, you had a 50% loss in the 73-74 bear market, and then you had to wait all the way to 2000-2002 to have another experience of losing 50%. And uh, then in 2008 and 2009, you went down another 50% and then came back again. So as you make these reductions in risk, the odds are in the next five years you're not going to actually have one of those terrible markets, but you might. And that's the way, theoretically, you're supposed to build the portfolio for what might come along that would give you a major setback sufficient that you would have to respond by working longer, or living on less than when you retire. And I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people, they might find themselves waiting until they're 45, or waiting until they're 50. Because as they look at this table, particularly let's say if it's not too long, let's say that in 1975, you would have already gone through a major bear market the odds of that happening again were not very great certainly not for a while so this ta- these tables have value beyond just a bunch of history that people like to think well what, what can we learn from the past well I think we can learn a, a lot and I hope it's helped and I hope that you'll pass it along to other people who uh, probably have some of the same needs that you do in terms of planning. See, every do-it-yourself investor probably needs something like this to be able to think through, legitimately think through what's likely to happen. And if there's one thing that I hope that these tables will, uh, a point they will make, is that there really is actually a fair amount of risk in owning just the S&P 500. And uh, that that risk is what happened from uh, 2000 through 2009 when a single asset class uh, took it on the nose uh, for a period of years, 10 years, uh, and that a more broadly diversified portfolio would have protected from that. It doesn't mean it always will, but at least it gave you a chance. And it also gives you a chance, as you broaden your, 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 your diversification, to come up with a higher return as you add asset classes that uh, don't change the volatil- volatility very much, but do have a, a, an, an impressive impact on the long-term return. Well, as always, thanks for listening, and... Um, uh, next week i think we're uh, going to be talking about one more fine tuning table and this one will be devoted to small cap value uh, in relationship to the the risk and return of different combinations of fixed income uh, this will include a list of 10 things i think we should all know about small cap value, whether we have a small amount or a large amount in our portfolio. Uh, I want to bring you up to date with the latest research from Fama in French, as well as looking backwards at uh, the history of this asset class. So till then, have a great, uh, a great week, and, uh, and again, thanks for listening.